Thank you, Steve, for throwing me under the donut bus. Good morning. We are going to wrap up our series on Galatians. And part of the reason for that is because this summer I slated to do a series on heaven, which will be starting soon. And this has been a great study. For me, it's one of my favorite books that I've studied to preach on. And uh, I'm excited about our last message today. I've titled it The Brotherhood. And he's going to get into this about what a community looks like. That's why I said the brotherhood. And in chapter 6, verse 1, he says brothers. So that's why I titled it Brotherhood. But before I go on, I just sometimes, we live in an age where, you know, people don't like, you know, gender nuanced, you know, addresses like that. And I just want to remind you that Paul in this book has been very uplifting to women. And so when he's saying brotherhood, it's a community. It's like saying mankind. It's everyone encompassed within that. But I go back to chapter 4, uh, verses 5 to 7, where he said, said uh, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And I remember when we preached on that, it was like, He's emphasizing sons so much. What about daughters? And I said, well, Paul's doing something specific there. Because in his day and age, women could not be heirs. And to look at the women there in the church and say, you are sons, and if you're a son, you're an heir, he was lifting them up. So I'm just taking you back and showing you that in the book, he holds men and women like this. And as he's finishing the book, I'm going to talk to you about the brotherhood, but he means the community, and he finishes at the very end of our, of our study today. Uh, in the last verse 10, he says, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. And where he's taking us is that we are a family. It's, an, it's another way. There's a lot of different uh, analogies you can use, but ultimately we are a family, sons and daughters of God. There's a heavenly father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what I'm going to say to you today is he's going to lay out what does this family look like? What does this community look like? I mean, if we were to go back in time, would we see the Galatian church gathering and having potlucks? You have to bring a dish, you know, like they're, they've got their version of Steve getting up there and saying five different languages, hello, and then, you know, giving announcements about bring a dish if you wish, you know. Did they do that? Did they gather like that and have the, the, the pot looks like that? What would we see? You know, sometimes when our small groups get together, they plan where... All of the adults are here and all of the kids are over here. Sometimes I've seen where they've, they've got two neighbors and they, they, the small group comes together and in this house are the adults and this house are the kids and they get babysitters so the adults can be together. I wonder if we went back in time, would we see that? Was that a, a, a description of what their small groups may have looked like? Here's the thing. When we look at this text of Scripture, he's going to give you qualities we should see in the community. And this would count for all time. 
in all centuries of the church. And they're not potluck descriptions. These are qualities that describe how the community interacts and relates to one another. Now, the first thing I'm going to give you actually starts in chapter 5. It's the last verse. I didn't cover it last week. But he's going to talk about one aspect that can erode the brotherhood, the eroding of the brotherhood. And he finishes up chapter 5. He says this, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. I love this, this word lettuce, by the way. I heard a theologian once talk about the salad people, and he was saying Christians are salad people because there's always talking about the lettuce. You know, let us do this, let us do that, let us do this. Here's one of them right here. Let us, and what is he saying? Let us not become conceited. Now, what's your understanding of what the word conceited means? If you looked it up, it'd be excessive pride. Somebody who's perhaps narcissistic, a self-absorbed person. And that does hit the target here somewhat, but it's a bit broader than that. This word, the Greek word for conceit, and I'm just going to say the presence of this in the community erodes the community. But the Greek word kinodoxoi means empty of honor. It means to be vain, glorious, and it describes a quality within us that longs for, that is hungry for glory, self-glory, for our name to rise above other people's names. We seek that for ourselves, and we're conscious always about our standing within the community. Where is my name? Where is my glory by comparison to the other members of this community? Now, it comes out in two ways. And we can ask, is it present? Oh, it's present. It's always present because we're human. We have a measure of it. It's something that exists within us. And maturing as a Christian is learning this and dealing with it. But there's two words he gives us here. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. It comes out in two ways. And the first here is provoking. Now, let me back up a step. This word conceit, so you can understand why we would provoke or be envious. But this word conceit, in the context he's given us here, is a deep insecurity, a perceived absence of honor and glory that leads to a need, a felt need to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. And this in turn will fixate your mind on comparing ourselves to others. And then the way it comes out is the two words he's given us. The first is provoke. But he's saying, let us not be conceited. In another way, you might read that verse as, let us not feel superior or inferior to others. And if you have a measure of that, where you feel superior 
or perhaps inferior, he's saying, let us not have that within us and within our community. In the first way, is provoke. This word, prokaleo, means competitive, to challenge someone to a contest. Now, a person that is like this, they feel superior to others, and so they interact in ways that can maybe be challenging. Instead of having a humility, they've got to bring up the qualities, they compare themselves to others, They're certainly comfortable in challenging. Anybody says something that is contrary to what I think, I can challenge that because I'm pretty confident in what I know. And it can be provoking, Paul says. But the other way is envy. There's a way to be conceited that envies others, and this comes out of the opposite, not being superior, but feeling inferior. We have a feeling of inferiority, and so what envy does is envy says we want what they have or we wish that they didn't have it. Maybe we look at somebody and we think, well, I wish I I was as smart as them, or I'm not as good looking as them, I'm not as as talented as them. And whatever blank you can fill in there, we feel a measure of inferiority, and so then envy comes out. But here's the thing, both of those, superior or inferior, they're both self-absorbed because at the center of both of those is you. You're either feeling higher than others or lower, but the comparison is all about you. And there's the need, like as I read earlier, to to measure your honor and glory by comparison to others. And you need to prove it. You need to prove that, that either you are better, I see something in you, I, but I know I'm superior, or maybe we feel like we're a person who, you know, we just haven't had it as good as others. We're inferior. You've been blessed in ways that I haven't. So this comes out of something that's internal, this vacuum inside of us, a longing for self-glory, and it drives us toward a feeling of either needing to be better than others or feeling like we're not. But as I said, they're both self-absorbed. Now, what does a community look like that is self-absorbed? If we were to ratchet those up to their maximum within us, the very best of us feeling superior walking amongst us, and the very lowest amongst us always walking around envying the others, what does that community look like? Now, you know I'm a coach, and I coach teams here on the island. I could ask it in this way, what does a team look like that's self-absorbed, that takes the field and is going to compete, they've got a job to do, They're going to try to win a contest, but the individual parts of the team care more about themselves than the team. I scored five goals, but we lost. In fact, we lost every game of the season. I'd rather have a player who didn't score, but did all they could for the team to win. They put the team before themselves. They put the players around them higher than themselves. It's a flip-flop. How can God's church do its job of reflecting Christ 
who he himself emptied himself, not self-absorbed. He had the right to be, stay in heaven, but he left that. He emptied himself and came down, gave his life away, died for you. The epitome of the what we are to represent is not self-absorption. It's a self-emptying. How can we accomplish the task of the Great Commission? How can we go into other cultures that will be uncomfortable? How can we ever send missionaries to places that are cultures unlike ours? We can hardly survive without power here. I mean, I don't know about you, but it hasn't been easy from what I'm used to. Finally, we got power. It went off again. We got power. It went off again. I mean, how many of that happened to you this week? I mean, I was in the middle of making dinner. I was like, I'm going to do something nice for my wife. I'm going to grill for her. She doesn't have to cook. We've been outside chopping branches, throwing them into that bin. She's tired. I saw her. I'm going to do something for you. And I'm cooking, and I put this meat out, and I'm doing the, you know, the pepper and the salt, and I'm doing, poof, complete darkness. I waited too late. You know, it was already dark outside. So then in the house, the kitchen's totally dark. I'm like, I, I got a flashlight. I can hardly see the pepper flakes. This could be spicy, honey. You know? And I've had to, in my, I'm a pastor, but I'm just going to tell you, there have been some times when I wanted to grumble this week. When are they going to fix this thing? It's been four weeks. How can we go into cultures that have no power? Right? There is, a, there is an emptying of ourselves to, to, in order to meet other people's needs. We have to get past ourselves. Now, you might be sitting there wondering, well, how self-absorbed am I? I never think of myself as conceited. Tim Keller wrote this little list. I'm going to read it to you. Probably you have a mix of those. In some ways you're envious. In some ways you feel superior at times to others. So let me read to you. It's like a, like a test an, a, to analyze yourself by asking these questions. Here's a few. Do I have a tendency to blow up or do I tend to clam up? Got quiet in here. Do I tend to pick arguments with people or do I completely avoid confrontation? Do I tend to get very down on individuals and groups of people or am I more often embarrassed and intimidated around certain classes or kinds of people? When criticized, do I get angry and very judgmental and simply attack right back? Or do I get very discouraged and very defensive and make lots of excuses or give right in? Do I often think I would never ever do what this person has done? Or do I often look at people and say, I could never ever accomplish what this person does? You see, in each of those questions, there's a little bit of both of those. Do you have conceit or not? And the reality is, is that, as Paul's going to show us through this text, is there is a kind of confidence in the gospel that is good. 
And there is a type of confrontation when the time is right that is good. And he's going to teach us that. But I think about C.S. Lewis is famous for this line. He says, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. That's real humility. We're going to go on. He's going to talk to us now. He's given us what can erode the brotherhood. But now he's going to give us how we can strengthen the brotherhood, the strengthening of the brotherhood. And he says in chapter 6, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And the first thing I want to say is, he, he says, you who are spiritual should. Any of you who are believers in Christ you fall into this category. Brothers, brothers and sisters, you're part of the family. You have a responsibility to the community of faith to do the things he's going to now describe as we walk through this. Okay? And the first one is this. As you take responsibility, restoring fallen brothers. If anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, it's important that he's just given you what can erode the brotherhood because it's possible going from the first point, you could have a feeling of superiority, right? I just read the list. Well, I would never do what that person did. If you're thinking that, there's a measure of conceit within you. Or, wow, they're really bad. That's a measure of conceit within you. To, this word caught... By the way, because we're not to just call out everything we see. The word caught there alludes to a pattern. It's something that we see in them. The word overtaken. So it balances this out. We don't point out every fault. But we're living as a community and I see a brother or sister in this community that seem to be overtaken, there's a pattern within their life that we can see, then I'm supposed to confront them in gentleness to have a loving conversation with him. There cannot be a feeling of superiority, and there may be a temptation to that, he says. But the first thing, take responsibility in strengthening the brotherhood, restore fallen brothers. There should be some accountability within our community. Number two, bearing our brother's burdens. He goes on in verse two because he says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, which was the part that I alluded to that you could be tempted to feel superior. But then he goes on in verse two, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what was Fulfilling the law of Christ is, is alluding to the famous saying that Christ did. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look, if I saw a fallen brother, first of all, if I'm a fallen brother, I would want someone to come and if they do speak to me, don't do it arrogantly or with pride or with superiority. Do it with love and gentleness. Give me time to think about and respond. Ultimately, it's the spirit within us that moves us. Say the right things and let God work within me. But the point is that we're to bear others' burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, treating the neighbor as you yourself would want to be treated. 
Now, here's the thing. He's going to go on to this. He say, uh, see, you can't help carry somebody else's burden if you don't get close to them. Because the idea of carrying is you come in, and I was thinking about a way to illustrate this. See, again, because I coach, if a soccer player gets injured and they go down on the pitch, I, sometimes maybe they're going to get up. But if they don't, the referee will stop the game, and they're checking, okay, and they'll turn around and they'll do this to me. The coach goes out. He runs out. He's going to make an assessment. Maybe we need to pull you out of the game. If they're hurt, now just imagine Let's say it's really bad and they, they're totally, they cannot put any pressure on the, this. This whole leg's gone. And you say, all right, well, let's go. You know, and they're like, what do you usually see happen? Usually you see, put your arm over my shoulder and I'm going to get underneath you and I'm going to look at my legs. I'm going to lift you up a little bit. I'm going to take on some of your weight. I usually do it on the side of the injured leg. And so now they can not put pressure on that and we can get them off the field. Now, if it was a soccer player like my son Ethan, he, that, that big guy, he's like, get two or three out here. Get him off the pitch. But you, you, you can't help them unless you come and get close to them. Hey, you over there, player, who is that? Okay, get off the field. That's not what he's saying. To help carry a burden is to come in close to them. See what's going on. And then to take some of the weight on yourself to be able to help them. And in a spiritual sense, that means you're not really helping unless you've got in close to them and you know them, you know their situation, and you help shoulder part of that burden. That's not a, I got some water for you here. I'm just going to give you something in the moment and walk away. No, it's going to take a little time. I'm going to have to put some of the weight on and help bring you off. I'm going to walk with you a little bit on this journey to get you off the pitch. And then you sit down, and then sometimes, I, I, like as a coach, i got to keep coaching, so I'll, I'll bring the assistant or we have a trainer, get somebody else, make sure they're getting the help that they need. Now, he goes on, though, to say, so not only bearing brothers' burdens, but also bearing your own load. Let me read to you these next set of verses. It says, For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing... He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, I need to make a point here because there's two different words being used here, load and burden. Because he's already said, bear another brother's burden, but now he's looking at you and saying, bear your own Load. There is a difference between load and burden. In fact, in, in the Greek, the difference between the words would be load is like a backpack that's been loaded on. But burden is a heavy weight. So it's something that's heavier than like a backpack that they're not going to be able to carry on their own. It's interesting, those two words and the differentiation of weight comparison between them. Now, at the very end, he says, each will have to bear his own load. You have your own load to carry 
you need to bear it, your own backpack that you're given to carry. If you can't, if you don't got yourself sorted out, I'm not going to be able to go onto the pitch and help my brother with his load. And there's a sense here where he's saying, you got your own backpack. The first thing here really is, you got to carry your own backpack. And this goes back to another famous line that Jesus said, which is, do not judge unless you be judged. You're trying to point out the, the, the splinter in that guy's eye when you got a two-by-four sticking out your own. There's a principle there that says the first step in helping other people is deal with yourself. Take that two-by-four out. Now you can probably see clear to even give help. There's a double standard there. But the point is, you have your own backpack to carry, is what he's saying. And you know what he's, you know what, what he's saying here, just to, 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 to be clear. Backpack represents the, the life situations that God has given you. And he's going to, underneath this, bear, this instruction to bear your own load, he's going to tell you how. And the first one is with humility, because he says in, in uh, verse 3, if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. There's no humility. I, I think I'm something, and everyone knows you're nothing. You're, there's a deception there that's it's self-delusional. And there's a, there, going back to the humility aspect, you're, maybe you're too self-absorbed. You think about yourself too much. If you're a person who's got to orient all the planets around you like you're the shining sun, that's the problem. You go into situations and you're always thinking about yourself. That type of person, it's hard to have good ministry because if you're really self-absorbed, most of the time the reason you're doing ministry is not the right reason. But... If you think you're something when you're nothing, there should be humility. And then there also, he says, with testing. Bear your own load with humility and bear your only load with testing. And we are given different loads, different backpacks. So there's a way in which you might look at people in the room and go, I wish I had their backpack. So that goes back to the envy part, the conceit. But you have your own situation in life, your own backpack that God has given you. And God, in His sovereignty, has dished it out in His own wisdom the way that He desires it to be, whatever your life situation is. We don't choose our ethnicity. We don't choose where we were born on the planet, in what country, under what century under what political environment exists at the time. We don't choose those things. God is sovereign in a lot of aspects of our life. And He's given us that load to carry. Now, yes, it's true. There, he's going to get to the sowing aspect, what you do with your life. There is an aspect of that, but there's also an aspect that is God's sovereign. And He's given you this backpack, but then He uses this word. You need to test yourself. Test yourself. Assess our opportunities, the particular duties we might have, is what he's saying. But one of the points here is that 
don't compare with others. God's given different loads to others, but make good use of what God has given you because you're going to go right into some stewardship right now. That's, how, that's the first part of this. How do we strengthen the brotherhood? How do, we, how do we make ourselves a better community? When we look at the community, what should we see? Remember, not just potlucks or do we divide our kids separately? No. What we should see when we look at the community of God is a restoration of fallen brothers with gentleness. Well, that, that's like the opposite of the world. The opposite of the world is to cancel you, to eviscerate you. We'll go all the way back in time to your high school time period and find something that's bad and drag you through the dirt for our own purposes. No. What we see in the community of God is grace and a restoring with gentleness. That's the kind of community I want to live in. Who wants to live in a community where you're afraid of what the community will do to you because of walking wrong. We're all going to walk wrong. Restoring fallen brothers is something we should see. Bearing brothers' burdens is something that we should see. Fulfilling the law of Christ. And we also see a community who can carry their own backpacks that assesses their life, takes what they are given, and makes thinks about the opportunities that are unique to them to use for the ministry of God. Now, that's strengthening, but there's a way in which he's going to go back to the very foundation because the next point is building the brotherhood. How do we build this? How do we, when we start at the very beginning, and I'm going to pick up here in verse 6, one who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And what Paul is doing here, he's, he's going backwards to the beginning of when he had these Galatian Christians and invested in them. Because earlier in the book, remember, he said, I am astonished that you are so quickly falling away from the gospel that was taught to you by these false teachers. And now he's kind of going back here to the beginning. Let me show you a couple things that he says here. And the first is, and I kind of looked at it this way, the blueprints of an architect. Because you're looking at Paul, right? If you're building something, you start with, well, let's draw it up and see what it looks like here. We got, we got in our mind what we're going to build. We're going we're gonna to put the design here. And we are talking about building. Even Paul talks about this. The church is building. Christ was the cornerstone. Then the apostles were the foundation, the New Testament says, which, by the way, means there was only one set of apostles. There aren't new apostles in the world today because, I don't know about you, but every building we go around and look at only has one foundation. You don't keep putting whole multiple foundations over time. There's one foundation. There's a cornerstone. It was Jesus Christ. There's a foundation, which was the apostles. And then he says, you are like living stones being built on top one of another. It's a building, spiritually speaking. It's people, a community that he's building. But look what he says here. Verse 6, one who is taught the word. Now, let me just stop right there. Here's the blueprint, number one. Paul expects new believers to be catechized. Now, the word here, the Greek word, 
Kakakuminos means anyone who receives instruction. But that word, do you know the word we get from that? We get the word uh, catechist from. Now, do you know what a uh, catechist is? It, recently, uh, Tim Keller's Church in New York, they just came out with this new, the, the Gospel City Catechist for Kids. And it was a big deal for a while. But essentially, as you learn by asking questions that have answers to them. Now, when I was, uh, my, my oldest sons were about six fifth grade, fourth, fifth, sixth grade in that age range, I did, it, I did this with them. I had this book, and it was like question number one. And I can't remember them in order, but some of the questions were like, you know, who made you? Why, who is God? Uh, why did God make you? And all the, the, the questions are like that, and the answers were simple like that, but I would go through, the, through it with them over and over again. And it's a way of learning theology by asking questions that have these answers that they give back to you, and you're building on top of them. And we went all the way up to like 50 questions. And we would only do one or two a week. Every time we did a new question, we would look at all the Bible verses that, that answer it. So the answers come from God's Word. But then as we go through them, we don't always look all them back up because when you get to like 50 questions, it's a lot of looking up. But you build that way. That is, a, that is a catechist. And he's saying, this is what Paul desired. Not that you ask questions in that format, but the underlying thing there is a body of content, a body of theological content. He expected new believers to be given that. When you became Christians, I gave you a body of theological content because you have to have that spiritual foundation. What is the gospel? Why do you need salvation? Why did Jesus have to come? And answer questions. You need to know the answers to these questions because when you go out into the world, you're going to be told a lot of uh, different things. And you need the truth so that the truth can always guide you. And Paul, if we're building something, he expects that we take new believers and invest in them in a way that we're giving them this body of doctrine. Anyone who receives instruction. These Galatians received instructions. They were catechized. And that's something to think about, right? Churches should be doing this. How? Well, the, the most common one is what's going on right now. There's a way in which as a pastor you think through what you're going to teach and you lay it out. I lay out series like six months in advance, and I talk to the elders about what we're going to cover over time. Before the pandemic, this church was more organized in the sense that we had more classes that we offered. We had more things that we offered, and we're just starting to get back on our feet. Now the storm has hit, but we, we're talking about those things. To have places for people to land, we have community groups. That's, that's the place to go now. But there could be a place where we have new believers, like he's saying, where they can walk through something that is at a milk level, not steak and meat and potatoes, that we make sure as they're coming in that there's a body of content doctrine that's being given. Now, here's the other thing that Paul expects. He expects deeper relationships because he says this. He says, one who is taught the word 
Look what he says. Must share all good things with the one who teaches. Now, this word share, koinoneo, is the word that we actually we get the word church from. It's a fellowship. It means to fellowship and to share with each other. That's what they called the early church. All these Jews that broke off, they were, you see in Acts, they're called the way. It was like they were this, this I'm sure to the Jews who stayed in Judaism, like that's a cult. They believe in this, this Jesus guy. But they became known as koinonia, a fellowship. They shared things in common with one another. And what he's saying here is that the one who is taught, they come in, we give them a body of content. That means there's a teacher that's doing that. And he says, the one who is taught must share all good things with the one who teaches. And there's, a, there's something that he's saying here. First of all, and here's the first is that the type of relationship that should exist has to go beyond the didactic. The didactic is teacher-student. And you may have gone through high school or you may have gone through college and you were in a class and you had a teacher and you never really knew them beyond that. You only knew them in the context of the classroom and you respected them and they gave information to you. It's didactic. It's a form of learning in that type of context. And he's saying, no, the one who teaches and the one who taught, there should be koinonia. There should be a fellowship among them. There should be something that goes deeper. A discipleship type of relationship. You should find within the church a deeper relationship. The, the way that our church is organized is in the smaller groups where we have leaders. It's very hard for me to have deep relationships with everybody. But I trust we invest in leaders and leaders bring in other people underneath them and they invest in them. But there should be a fellowshipping type of relationship with leadership. And then he says this, and basically he's saying this, don't be consumers. Don't come into a church and get taught and consume and get and leave and don't invest any of yourself into it. And when he uses this phrase, he says, um, one who is taught the word must share all good things. I looked this up numerous places and the consensus is that this is, has to do with material possessions. That the, the students gave back to the teachers in a way that helped them materially so that they focused on the, the, the ability to just be teachers. And there's a way what he's saying that within the church, that is needed. Now, that can be pastors, but it can also be beyond that, the way that this is written. And, you know, at our church, we have one, right now one full-time elder. But to support me, we have other staff. You saw Jessica get up here. Jessica is supported by this church. She supports me because she focuses on an area of the church so that I can... I did kids in ministry a long time, but I, cons I focus my efforts on teaching in other ways now. Um, but this is what he's primarily saying is don't be a consumer. If you go to a church... And you don't help support that way. 
That's the opposite of what Paul is talking about. Well, I support here and I support over there and I support over here. If you're sitting in a church, he's saying, where teaching is happening and you're receiving the teaching, then you cannot be just a consumer. You need to give back to that church. Now, this is how we build the brotherhood. Here's the blueprint he's giving you. He expects new believers to be categorized. He expects deeper relationships between teacher and students. But then he's going to give us some principles for building as well here in verses 7 to 8. Let me read that real quick. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And what I drew out of this was two things. This is just principles now. First, we had Paul's blueprints. These are things he wants to see, but these are principles of building. There's an aspect of architecture that doesn't matter the unique design of the designer. There's, there's some mathematical principles that the building is going to need this if it's going to be this size. These are principles that he's given you. And the first is this. Without sowing... There is no harvest. You will never harvest something you don't sow. Because he says here, as, as he starts out, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. And he goes to the world of agriculture. I mean, the farmers know this. Whatever sown is reaped. If I put this type of seed in, if I put in tomato seeds, I'm not going to get corn. It's, it's a principle. But the first thing I want you to see is if you don't sow, there is no reaping. And, and so hold that thought for a second. But that's the first thing he's showing you here. Without sowing, there's no harvest. But the other thing is there's an unstoppable force of nature. In other words, God builds it into the reason the farmers know this is because God made it this way. If you put the seed in there, the propensity for growth and life and fruit and harvest is inside the seed. You put it in there, you put the dirt over it, you water it, you do that type of work, it will grow. So there's an element of the thing. Is it a tomato? Is it corn? What is it? But there's also the element of time. And that is not always the same, is it? Some types of things that you sow take longer to bring forth the harvest. But the point is, it will happen. That's why I use the word unstoppable. Whatever is sown, there will be a harvest. It's unstoppable. It will come in its time. Because this is what he's going to give you in the next verses. Is what he says. <clears throat> well, not to skip, I like to try to cover everything that he's saying. But the reason he says is, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, is it's almost like he's saying, we all know this in agriculture, this happens. God, don't mock God. Because what he's going to say is this, if you sow in the flesh, you will reap the flesh. If you sow in the Spirit, you will reap the Spirit. 
If the principle's true in farming and agriculture, it's true in the spiritual realm, is what Paul is saying. Don't mock God. It's one thing to say to the farmer, if you put a tomato seed in there, you're going to get a corn. And the farmer will be like, are you mocking me? And it's flip-flop over here to the spiritual side. You know what, God? Why am I not harvesting the Spirit? Because you've sown in the flesh. Don't mock God. It's a principle is what he's saying. Now, let me wrap it up because he finishes this out by saying, uh, for the one who sows of his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. This is what I was just saying. The one who sows of the Spirit will reap of the Spirit eternal life. So the question is, what are you sowing? Don't expect spiritual growth if you don't sow that. You must put the time in. And you know what? If you do, just like that agricultural principle, there will be a harvest in time. Because look what he says. This is what he ends with. He's going to tell you to be patient. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And this is, the, this is, I think I put here, his final exhortation. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. This to me is like he's finishing with the, with the coach's pep talk almost. It's like, don't give up! Because remember, we're talking about the community. And you can be like, I'm so exhausted of helping these needy people. But he's saying... Work at building a community. Work at building a brotherhood. Work at those relationships. Sow that kind of seed. And in time, it will produce a harvest. It will grow a community that can do God's work, that can fulfill the Great Commission in the area God's placed the church. Keep doing the work. In due season, it will bring a harvest. And then lastly, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are the household of faith. And I just love this. His last emphasis is the household of faith. He's been talking about the brotherhood. And he steps to the side for a quick second and says, we need to be good everywhere. Christ community culture. We go out into the culture, be good to your neighbors. But he comes back over here, especially to the household of faith. What good does it do to invest in people not in your family, and then they look over here and they see that you don't take care of your family? I'm a dad and I'm striving hard, and my son's friend's car is broken. Oh, I'll help you fix it. Oh, you need some money for that? Oh, you need help into college? And my kid over here has a broken down car, can't pay for college. They go, man, why don't you help your own son? It says something about you and your family. And there's an aspect where is, where are your sowing efforts? Because they should be, as he says right here, especially should be within this community, within the household of God. You should be making the lion's share of your investments in the household of God. It's a testimony. It's an apologetic. It's a defense. 
that you really believe. Because if you do go out and you, I'm going to put everything only in reaching them here, and they come back in, they go, you don't really believe what you're telling me over here and out here in this world. Because I come into your world, into your community, and it looks a lot different than what this says. And there's a way in which his final exhortation is never give up and prioritize your church family. I want to finish this series, but I want you to read these two things with me together. Would you do that? And let us not grow... Okay, so everyone together. Okay, all right. Okay, are you ready? And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Heavenly Father, thank you for this series in Galatians, and we just finish it as you have, you're emphasizing, Lord, your household, the community of Christians, the brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we've worked at, at small groups the decade I've been here, and I know leaders get tired, and, and there are those within the church who they consume, they come in, and they they take a lot. They don't give much. And I pray that, just like Paul said, we should be catechizing these principles. We should be teaching these things so that we see them in our community. And maybe, maybe we need to circle back to this more, but I pray that we would be a community that exemplifies these things. That we would guard against the eroding of the brotherhood because there's conceit within us, a feeling of superiority or inferiority. It affects relationships. 